fly is not a fly. It's actually a beetle. A prairie dog is not a dog. It's a rodent. A horned toad is not a toad. It's a lizard. A lead pencil is not really lead. It actually contains graphite. A Douglas fir is not a fir tree. It's a pine. A silkworm is not a worm. It's a caterpillar. A shooting star is not a star. It's a meteorite. And being religious isn't the same as living right with God. Hey, just because a person acts spiritual, just because they observe rituals, doesn't mean that he or she truly walks with the Lord. What you see is not always what you get. Appearances can be deceiving, and that was true of the Jews in Zechariah's day, and that's the theme of chapter 7. Verse 1 tells us, Now in the fourth year of King Darius, it came to pass in the word, that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, Chislev. The fourth day of the ninth month. The Hebrew word Chislev or Kislev corresponds to our November, early December. Late November, early December, that was the month. Now we can date chapters 7 and 8 as December the 4th, 518 B.C. This was about two years after Zechariah's eight nighttime visions we studied last week and about two years after the beginning of the reconstruction of the temple. At this point, Zerubbabel has worked on the temple in Jerusalem. It's about halfway finished. Verse 2 tells us, When the people sent Sherezir with Regimelech and his men to the house of God to pray before the Lord and to ask the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? Now, a delegation of priests, they come to the temple to pray and to seek clarification from the priests involving a certain matter. This word, translated pray, is an interesting word. It's a provocative word here in verse 2. It means to stroke the face of the Lord. Apparently, these Jews came humbly. They came passionately, unashamedly. They came seeking God's favor. And they made no bones about it. They wanted God's blessing. They were not afraid to ask, not afraid to stroke his face. And they also had a question. Should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? Understand the 70 years the Jews spent in Babylon had been a distressing, had been a depressing time. Psalm 137 describes their mood. The psalmist writes, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yes, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows. In other words, in Babylon, they stopped singing. They stopped celebrating. Their hearts were heavy. In fact, they hung up their instruments. They mourned for the home that they had left behind. And it was during their stay in Babylon that four holy days were added to the Jewish calendar. In the law of Moses, God had established seven, seven feast days, times of rejoicing, but now in Babylon, 
the Jews added four fast days to the calendar. These were days of weeping, of mourning, of fasting. Now, in Babylon, they had little to be happy about. And and the thought was to remember their previous plight, remember their sins, remember their mistakes. And here this delegation specifically mentions the fast of the fifth month. Should we continue with this fast of the fifth month? This fast occurred in the month of Ab on the ninth day of the month of Ab. It commemorated events that had taken place on this date, Ab the ninth, or on our calendar, August the 6th, 586 B.C. This was an infamous day, for this was the date that the Babylonian army burned God's temple to the ground. The Hebrews call it Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Ab, and it's still commemorated by Jews even to this day. Traditionally, this is a day of weeping and mourning, for not only was the temple burned by the Babylonians on the ninth of Ab, But 650 years later, when the Romans repeated this notorious deed, again destroying the temple, believe it or not, it occurred on the exact same date, the 9th of Ab. It's interesting, the Jewish Talmud also taught that on that day, much earlier, centuries beforehand, God decreed that Israel wouldn't enter the promised land because of their unbelief and instead wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But again, what day did that occur on? The 9th of Ab. In the 2nd century AD, again, on Ab the 9th, a Jewish rebel named Bar Kokhba revolted against Rome. It ended in a devastating defeat, the death of half a million Jews, the banishment of the remaining Jews from Jerusalem. During that time, again, on this very same day, Ab the Ninth, a Roman named Tumas Rufus plowed the Temple Mount underground, fulfilling the prophecy of Micah 3, verse 12, that Zion would be plowed like a field. You see, in antiquity and even in modern times, Tisha B'Av has been a day that has lived on in infamy for the Hebrews. Some people have referred to it as the Jewish 9-11. The first crusade was launched on the 9th of Av, as was the expulsion of the Jews from England in 1290, from France in 1306, from Spain in 1492, the year that Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It wasn't so nice for the Jews. They all were expelled on the 9th of Av. In 1941, the Nazi party in Germany gave formal approval for the extermination of the Jews on this exact same day. In essence, the Holocaust began on Tisha B'Av. This is why even today the Jews mourn and fast on this infamous date. On the 9th of Ab, there is no eating or drinking. There is no bathing or washing. No applications of creams or colognes or oils. No wearing of leather shoes. No marital or sexual relations. Even today, the Jews observe a day of weeping and mourning, a fasting day, the ninth of Ab. But in Zechariah's day, back in 518 B.C., with the return of the Jews, with the rebuilding of their temple, this was the question. 
Should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? And I'm sure they expected a yes or no response, but that's not what they got. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you have fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? You know, it's interesting. God doesn't fixate on the fast. In fact, it doesn't, he doesn't really care about the fast per se. What God cared about was the attitude of the people performing the fast. Why were they fasting? That's what God wanted to know, to make themselves look good, to appear religious, to ease a guilty conscience. Or were they fasting to focus on God and learn from their mistakes and to seek the will of the Lord? Understand, a sincere fast is of great spiritual value. Fasting is a good discipline to cultivate. It's been said, fasting is a way to fatten our soul. G. Campbell Morgan called fasting a means of discovering the stronger, the truer, the nobler in order to create larger room in my soul for the coming and going and sweep of the Spirit. Fasting helps to separate what's spiritual from what's physical. It carves out of our hearts more room for the work, for God's Spirit to work in us. It exercises our soul, and it promotes discipline, and it allows us to focus on spiritual things. Used properly, fasting is a fast track to spiritual growth. It's a healthy practice. But used improperly, and fasting becomes a farce. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for their Hollywood holiness. They were fasting for show, just to create a scene for themselves, just to promote themselves. A.W. Tozer once said, rituals can be a front or a fount. You know, it's interesting, nowhere in this passage does God either encourage or discourage the fast it can serve a purpose if done with the right attitude, but what God hates is hypocrisy. Any kind of service we do for him from un- impure motives. Notice he says in verse 6, when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? He said, you do all this, but it's not for me. You see, the issue is not fasting or feasting, but the attitude behind what we do. Remember, this was Paul's advice in Romans chapter 14. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. In other words, whether you eat or live it up, or whether you fast or give it up, your goal should be to bless the Lord. That should be the point. But these Jews of Zechariah's day, they were acting selfishly. He says, should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it were inhabited and prosperous and the south and the lowland were inhabited? In other words, the prophets of old had spoke to this issue. Remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, it was Samuel who told Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. In other words, God wants heartfelt obedience, not hollow rituals, not feigned fasting. 
Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute true justice. Show mercy and compassion, everyone to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. Remember the question, what about the fast? But notice the answer. Fasting is not the point. If you want to be pleasing to God, love your brother. Show compassion. Be merciful. God is far more impressed with compassion than with self-denial. Remember what he said back in Isaiah 58? He said, is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of the wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring to your house the poor who are cast out? This is the fast God desires. Not religious performance, but love. For your brother, love is the litmus test for what pleases God. Again, what you see is not always what you get. People can feign devotion to God with all sorts of religious deeds, but what matters is what's in our heart. Do we have love for our brother? This is the fast God calls for, that we give our brother food to eat and bring the poor into our own house. Verse 11. But they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, and stopped their ears so that they could not hear. How sad is that? The Jews' response to Zechariah's warnings, they just shrugged him off. They responded to the voice of God by purchasing earplugs. Can you imagine? I heard of a ranger in Yellowstone National Park. He was leading a tour of hikers to a lookout deep within the forest. And he was busy describing the beauties of nature, so much so that he considered the buzz of the two-way radio in his hand a distraction, so he turned it off. Suddenly, he was met by another ranger who'd been stationed at the lookout. The man was nearly breath breathless. He wanted to know why the tour guide hadn't been listening to his radio. You see, the lookout had spotted a grizzly bear stalking the group and had been trying to warn them of the danger. Man, when we close our ears to God... When we refuse to listen to his voice, not only do we miss out on blessings, we also become subject to grave danger. And then verse 12, yes, they made their hearts like flint. Not only did they close their ears, they, made their, they hardened their hearts, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Thus great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed and they would not hear, so they called out, and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. Check that out. Here's a sobering thought for you. God also owns a set of earplugs. If every time God tries to get through to you, you tune him out, when you finally see the error of your ways and cry out to him, God might not be willing to listen to you anymore. Don't ever take God's mercy and his attention for granted. He said, but I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned, for they made the pleasant land desolate. There came a time when God turned a deaf ear to the cries of his people and brought judgment upon them. 
This was why they had spent those 70 years in Babylon. Chronologically speaking, the last chapter in the Old Testament is 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And it is a sad passage. It conveys the same story as verse 14 here. It reads, The Jews mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Woe to the man who stops listening to God. Well, chapter 8 begins. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor, I am zealous for her. Commentator Walter Kaiser, he writes this. Zeal is an aspect of God's internal intensity and the passion that he brings to everything that he does and says. The passion God brings to everything he does and says. Understand, God is not some old geezer sitting on a log somewhere who doesn't get excited, who has to control his blood pressure since he's living on the edge of a stroke. That's not God. God isn't some retiree who relishes peaceful days and restful nights. That's not God. To the contrary, the Bible tells us that God is a consuming fire. That means that he's passionate about stuff. He's zealous about things. He never tires. He never stops caring. He has unlimited emotional energy to invest in those issues that matter to him. And here he tells us, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. What is God so passionate about? He's passionate about his people Israel in the city of Jerusalem. Now realize, Zechariah is still answering the question put to the priest back in chapter 7, should they keep the feast? And the answer is sure, if you like. There's value in remembering the past and the lessons you've learned. But don't let the failures of the past become a cloud over your future. For God is zealous, he says, to do a new work in Zion. He wants to lavish blessings upon them. In chapter 8, he goes on to show how God is going to transform their fasts into feasts. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. While Zechariah's colleagues... Haggai and Zerubbabel were chiseling stone and building a temple. The prophet was getting a glimpse into the future. The builders were sweating, whereas the prophet was seeing. You know, the book of Zechariah is often called the apocalypse of the Old Testament. It's quoted or alluded to 71 times in the New Testament, and of those 71 times, 31 of the references are actually found in the book of Revelation. Zechariah, in fact, is quoted more in Revelation than any other Old Testament book except for the much longer book of Ezekiel. Zechariah sees into the future, and he sees Zion's last day's glory and realizes how incredible these visions were to people who lived at that time. You see, the temple that Zerubbabel was building was a pathetic comparison to the beauty and the glory of Solomon's previous temple. 
In contrast to Solomon's temple, this temple was a hut. The Jews at the time, they were haunted by the nation's more glorious past. Zerubbabel's workers knew that nothing they did could match the achievements of their forefathers. Like the soldier's son of a five-star general, they realized that they would never measure up to their father's greatness. You see, without Zechariah's visions, Zerubbabel's job site would have been a really depressing place. Yet here the prophet assures the Jews that rather than a dim replica of their former glory, their new temple is going to be a stepping stone to future glory, that God's visions to Zechariah prove to the Jews that Zion's greatest glory still lies ahead. The Lord will come to Zion, he says, and dwell in Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. In other words, Jerusalem will sing, happy days are here again, trust me. Of course, this is not the case in Jerusalem today. The Muslims call the Temple Mount Al-Quds, which is Arabic for holy one, but they've made it anything but holy. Two mosques today desecrate the Temple Mount. As a matter of fact, the facade encircling the Dome of the Rock, this infuriates me every time I go there, every time I see it. The facade, the banner at the top of the mosque that encircles the Dome of the Rock is a direct affront to Christianity. It reads this, God does not beget, nor is he begotten. In other words, it is a direct denial of the virgin birth and deity of Jesus. It is a blasphemous lie. And yet here we're told that one day Jesus will return. The Lord will come to Zion. He's zealous for Zion. And he will destroy the Muslim presence in the holy city. The mountain will again become the city of truth, not the home of lies. He goes on and he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. Here are some of the sights that you see today in modern Jerusalem. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Today in Jerusalem's Jewish quarter, you'll see old men and old women gather. You'll see little boys and little girls playing in the streets. It's a fulfillment of this prophecy right here in Zechariah. I love when I'm there in the old city, in the quarter, I love to read this passage to the people that I'm with. It's a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, and it looks forward to an even greater fulfillment, to a day yet to come when Jerusalem will achieve a future glory. You know, in the kingdom age, when Jesus returns and reigns in Jerusalem, its streets will again be safe for the elderly. Little children will flock and play in its streets. One author writes this, God's kingdom will not have come on this earth until its streets are fit for its children. But by the same token, it will not have come until its children are fit for the streets. A glorious era awaits Jerusalem. Verse 6 tells us, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts? Hey, the post-exilic period of Zechariah and Zerubbabel must have been a marvelous time. 
After 70 years in exile, the Jews had returned to their land. They were rebuilding. Things were happening. They were recultivating the land. God was blessing them again with prosperity. It was an exciting time to be alive. But if you think 500 B.C. was exciting, just wait until the end of this age when Jesus returns and does his marvelous work. Messiah will do the impossible, the miraculous, the marvelous. Remember, God is zealous toward Zion. And thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. And this is happening again today. This is why our tickets to Israel are so expensive. All the Jews are coming back. They're returning to Jerusalem. But the greatest return will occur in the last days. After Antichrist is defeated, once Messiah is on the throne, then all the Jews from all the world will flock back to their ancient homeland. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who have been hearing in these days these these words by the mouth of the prophets, who spoke in the day the foundation was laid for the house of the Lord of hosts, that the temple might be built. But before this age of glory comes, Zerubbabel needs to finish this temple. That's why all these promises for the future were so important to him. To know what's going to happen in the future, this was the impetus for him to finish that temple right now. This was what kept the builders moving forward, kept them energized for their their challenges. And isn't it our glorious future, the promises we've been given, the heaven that awaits us, that motivates us to let our hands remain strong, for us to be faithful to the things that God's called us to do. And then verse 10, For before these days there were no wages for man, nor any hire for beast. There was no peace from the enemy for whoever went out or came in, for I set all men, everyone, against his neighbor. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days says the Lord of hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous. The vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give her increase. And the heavens shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these. Oh, how things are going to change for Zion. Whereas tough times were in their past, God is going to make them prosper again. God will give them fertile fields and ripe grapes, dew and rain. This was the case in Zechariah's day, and it's also the case today. Modern Israel is also becoming a prosperous land. And it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I determined to punish you, When your fathers provoke me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent, so again in these days I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. Remember the zeal that God has for Zion. Here he says that he will bless them to the same degree that he has punished them previously. In other words, God does nothing half-hearted. There is a divine zeal. There is an intensity in both God's blessings 
and his curses. He says, these are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. And do not love a false oath. For all these are things that I hate, says the Lord. Notice what God hates. There's several passages in the scripture where he tells us. Here he says he hates lies. He hates injustices. He hates evil assumptions about your neighbors. In contrast, he loves truth and fairness and good intentions. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. Therefore, love truth and peace. Tisha B'Av was the fast of the fifth month. But it was just one of four such fasts instituted by the Jews in Babylon. The fast of the tenth month marked the beginning of Babylon's siege of Jerusalem. The fast of the seventh month mourned the death of the governor at the time, Governor Gedaliah. We read about him back in Jeremiah 41, if you remember. And the fast of the fourth month commemorated the day, the exact day when the walls of Jerusalem were breached and the Babylonians began their invasion. Traditionally, the Jews observe an extended period of mourning from the fast of the fourth month to the ninth of Ab. During those three weeks, no weddings are scheduled. The book of Lamentations, that book of weeping, is read in all their synagogues. It's an annual day of grieving over past sins. But Zechariah is saying here that the day is going to come when God is going to change their fasting into feasting. He's going to turn their mourning into rejoicing. Joy will again come to the holy city. You know, it's interesting. In the law of Moses, God gave his people six feasts and only one fast. God wants us feasting six times more than he wants us fasting, apparently. Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, was the only fast the people were required to keep. The four added in Babylon were all man-made. And I think this reveals God's heart. Though repentance is important, God would rather us rejoice in his forgiveness than wallow in our guilt and in our failure. God wants us to embrace his mercies and move on. There is another provocative Jewish tradition associated with with the ninth of Ab, or Tisha B'Av, the fast of the fifth month. In the, an extra-biblical account known as the Jerusalem Talmud, there is a prophecy that predicts the Messiah would be born on Tisha B'Av, on the ninth of Av. History doesn't tell us when Jesus was born, although that the shepherds had their flocks in the fields at night, was probably an indication that it was much earlier than December 25th. We really don't know for sure. It seems the Catholic Church chose the winter date to correspond with a pagan festival. They hoped that more people would celebrate Jesus' birth if it was observed on what was already a holiday on the Roman calendar. But I put more stock in this Jewish prophecy. Think about it for a moment. How cool would it be if the God who according to John chapter 1 
tabernacled in human flesh, was actually born on the anniversary of the Jewish temple's destruction. How cool would that be? You remember in John 2, verse 19, Jesus told the Jews, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. John makes a point of adding that Jesus was referring to his body as the temple of God. His body was the habitation of God on earth at the time. What poetic justice that on the anniversary of the destruction of Solomon's temple, God raised up a new temple. Jesus became the dwelling of God on earth. And if that's the case, we should be celebrating Christmas in August, the 9th of Av. Imagine a summertime Christmas, Christmas at the beach, chestnuts roasting on the barbecue, sunburn nipping at our nose. That'd be a lot of fun. Verse 20, thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another saying, let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. These verses look to the distant future when all the earth will visit the Lord Jesus who is reigning in Jerusalem. You know, the day's going to come when people are going to no longer look to Washington or to Beijing or to Paris or London or New York. Jerusalem will be where the action is. From the holy city, Messiah will reign and all the earth will come to seek him. And thus says the Lord of hosts, I love this, In those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That's so cool. What a promise. You know, historically, the Jews have been a hated race. They were labeled Christ killers. They were drawn as little devils. They have been falsely accused of everything from the black plague to the stock market crash to AIDS. And yet one day, Gentiles are going to flock to Jerusalem. They're going to see a Jewish man. They're going to grab him by the sleeve, and they're going to ask to take a tour. Hey, take us around. Hey, would you show us the holy sites? Teach us God's ways, for we have heard that God is with you. The day is going to come when every Jew will be a tour guide. From the beginning, God intended for the Jews to be a light to the Gentiles. Hey, that day is going to come. Which brings us to Zechariah chapter 9. The burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place, for the eyes of men... And all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. This is the only place in the Bible that mentions the land of Hadrach. It must have been a region region of Samaria that was linked to Damascus. But this is a heavy word against this land. You know, the Hebrew word burden, it means heavy. And when applied to a prophecy, it denotes an ominous warning from God. Understand, 
all at the time, all of these cities were known commodities. Damascus, Hamath, Tyre, and Sidon. These were all well-known places. You probably know that Damascus is, is one of the oldest cities on earth. Tyre and Sidon were commercial capitals that navigated the seven seas. As a result, they were known in all the world. And yet all these cities had sinned and practiced wickedness, and this meant that the world was watching. Notice verse 1, for the eyes of men and the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. They were watching this. Out of the corner of their eye, the nations of the earth were watching to see how long God would put up with these wicked cities, how long he would tolerate them. You know, I have four kids, and whenever one of them would disobey, the others would watch. For if their sibling got away with it, they probably could too. That's how they figured. Well, here Zechariah knows every eye is on God to see if he's going to punish these cities. And thus, in the next few verses, he goes into detail about God's, God's punishment. He prophesies concerning God's punishment. God is going to make an example out of these four wicked cities. Verse 3. For Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea and, will, and she will be devoured by fire. Now remember in verse 2, Zechariah says that Tyre was wise and, and wise she was. In 586 B.C., after sacking Jerusalem, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, he attacked the coastal city of Tyre. And for 13 years, he laid siege to the city. Tyre was able to hold off her invaders. When the walls finally collapsed and the Babylonians streamed into the city, they were surprised. For they discovered that the streets and the houses of Tyre were empty. The citizens of Tyre had moved via ship to an island about a half mile off the coast. Nebuchadnezzar's efforts won a hollow victory. Yet here Zechariah predicts that God will destroy her power in the sea. And this happened 241 years after Nebuchadnezzar about 180 years after Zechariah, the man who's making these predictions. This is an amazing proof of the Bible's reliability. For the Lord raised up a young Greek, a Greek general by the name of Alexander. Alexander the Great attacked Tyre in 332 B.C. A stroke of genius caused Alexander to take the rubble from the man-made city, the man, I'm sorry, the mainland city, you know, the one that they had abandoned. Alexander took that rubble and he built a 200-foot-wide causeway out to the island city. It took seven months to build it, but they were able to successfully march across it under the cover of their, of their navy. They were able to march across the causeway and Alexander the Great's troops were able to conquer Tyre. Ezekiel 26 also prophesies these events in detail as well. The destruction of Tyre, an amazing feat of history conquered by Alexander the Great, but foreseen in advance by Zechariah. 
Well, verse 5 goes on. Ashkelon shall see it in fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. After his dramatic victory over Tyre, Alexander turned south, and he marched along the Mediterranean coast to attack the five Philistine cities. It says, I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth, but he who remains, even he shall be for our God and shall be like a leader in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. When the Philistines were judged, God says that he will cleanse them of their drinking blood and eating of abominations. These were idolatrous practices. Their destruction would end their idolatry. In the end, they would become devoted to the true God. This was the plight of Jerusalem's original residents. He mentions the Jebusites. After David conquered the Jebusites, they converted to Judaism and assimilated into Israel. And now he's saying this will be the destiny of the Philistines and of their chief city, Ekron. And this has some provoc. This all occurred in Alexander's day, certainly. But this also has some provocative implications for modern day times. Did you know the word Palestine? It literally means land of the Philistines. Today's Philistines are the Palestinian Arabs. And it could be that in the future, as in the past, the Philistines will be converted to the God of Israel and incorporated into Israel. The Jews' hated enemies will in the end be their brothers. I look for this to happen only when Jesus returns. Verse 8. Our verse 8 is amazing. He says, I will camp around my house, the temple in Jerusalem. That's God's house. Because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns, no more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. Now, history tells us that after Alexander conquered Philistia, he marched on to Jerusalem. The Jewish historian Josephus says that earlier, during the siege of Tyre, Alexander had called on the Jewish high priest, a man named Jadis, to mobilize Jews to help the Greeks. Well, Jadis refused. Of course, this made Alexander extremely angry. And the general had vowed to destroy Jerusalem as a result. When Alexander turned his army toward Jerusalem, Jadis knew he was in trouble. And so he called on the city to offer sacrifice to God and to pray for deliverance. God told Jadis to take courage, that he would deliver Jerusalem. This was all according to Josephus. Jadis was to adorn the city with wreaths, and he was to open its gates to the invaders, to Alexander. The Jews were to welcome Alexander in white robes, and their priests were to dress in the garments prescribed under the law. Now, here's what Josephus writes. When Alexander, while still far off, saw the multitude in white garments, the priest at their head clothed in linen, and the high priest in a robe of hyacinth blue and gold, wearing on his head the mitre, 
with the golden plate on which was inscribed the name of God, he approached alone and prostrated himself. That is Alexander the Great prostrated himself before the name, the name of God, and greeted the high priest. Now, of course, Alexander's men were shocked by this, that their general would bow before a Jewish priest. When they asked him why, this is what Josephus tells us that he said. It was not before him that I prostrated myself, but the God of whom he has the honor to be high priest. For it was he whom I saw in my sleep, dressed as he is now when I was in Macedonia, back in Greece. As I was considering how I might become master of Asia, he urged me not to hesitate, but to cross over confidently, for he himself would lead my army and give over to me the empire of the Persians. According to Josephus, Alexander the Great spared the city of Jerusalem because he believed that it was the God of the Jews who had guided him to victory over the Persians. Amazing. Now, secular historians have doubted Josephus' story, but it's interesting how archaeology changes things. In 2013, a mosaic was discovered in an ancient Hebrew synagogue just northwest of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. Some scholars believe that it depicts Alexander's meeting with Jadis. Notice to the right, you have what looks like a general. To the left, you've got this man in white garments and and all those that are with him, the priests. There are many people who believe that this was actually a depiction of Alexander's meeting with Jadis. It is a fact of history that Alexander refused to destroy the city of Jerusalem as he did the other cities in the region. Zechariah had promised that God would camp around his house, and indeed he did. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Recently, I read a Jewish joke, not really a joke, but kind of a joke. A new flood was predicted on the earth, and in three days, the world would be wiped out with water. And so a Buddhist leader, he went on TV, and he pleaded for everyone to become a Buddhist. Billy Graham called for the world to turn to Jesus before it was too late. While the chief rabbi of Israel went on television and he said, okay, guys, we only have three days to learn how to swim. The point being that most Israelis today, they no longer look for a personal Messiah. They're humanists at heart. They believe in the indomitable spirit of man, that if man tries hard enough. Yet here, Zechariah, he focuses on an approaching Savior. He says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. God is going to give you something to shout about, but it's not your own ingenuity. It's not your own efforts. It's not your own brilliance. It's not the indomitable spirit of man. No, behold, your king is coming to you. 
God is going to send you a Savior. And if the Jews of the first century had taken heed to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, they wouldn't have missed the Messiah when he came to them the first time. For as predicted, Jesus came lowly and riding on a donkey. See, this was the script that Jesus followed on the Sunday before his crucifixion when he presented himself to the nation, when he rode that donkey down the Mount of Olives. On the exact day foretold in Daniel 9, Jesus arranged a donkey as his transportation. And just as Zechariah predicted, 500 years earlier, he came riding. Roman emperors or generals would have ridden a black stallion. But the first time Jesus came, it was not to reign and rule. It was to serve and to save. And thus Jesus boarded a beast of burden, a pack animal, a donkey. The Jews missed him because they were thinking as secular Romans rather than as Hebrews immersed in the Scriptures. They didn't know the prophecies. They didn't bring to mind Zechariah 9, verse 9. God goes on to say in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 9 speaks of Jesus' arrival. Verse 10 speaks of his ultimate authority. When he returns a second time, his agenda will be disarmament. The chariot, the horse, the battle bow, all instruments of war will be cut off. He'll bring about peace to the ends of the earth. It's interesting, verse 9 here speaks of the Messiah's first coming. Verse 10 speaks of his second coming. And, and of course, as we've been going through these prophecies, we know this is common usage in the Old Testament. A prophet sees future events, but not necessarily the timing between them. And thus, there can be an immediate and a future fulfillment in the very same verse, and that's what we have here. Then verse 11, As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. A waterless pit refers to a cistern that doubled as a prison cell. You'll see cisterns all over Israel. I'm not talking about the opposite of brethren, you know, cisterns, but cisterns. They're caves that captured and stored rainwater. And at times, after a cistern dried up, it was used as a prison. Remember, Jeremiah was, was thrown into the mud, thrown into a, a waterless cistern. Here God is referring to the Jews still in Babylon as prisoners in a waterless cistern that he will eventually free. He says, return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today, I declare that I will restore double to you. See, a double portion was the inheritance of the firstborn. And when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, he referred to them as the firstborn among many nations. The Jews were special to God. He considered them his firstborn, and thus they were entitled to a double portion of his blessings. Verse 13, For I have bent Judah, my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Here he predicts the sons of Zion will overwhelm the sons of Greece. Here's what happened 180 years later that Zechariah foresees into the future. Here's what happened after Alexander the Great. 
You remember Alexander the Great, he died without naming a successor. This set off a war between his rival generals, and his empire was split into four sections, four kingdoms. Israel was sandwiched between the Seleucid dynasty of Syria and the Ptolemaic dynasty of Egypt. And for the next 200 years, Israel was the battleground between the Hatfields and McCoys, you could say, between the Syrians in the north and the Egyptians in the south. The Greek period of Jewish history, this Greek period, contains some really colorful characters. For example, Cleopatra of Egypt. She lived during this period of time. But the most notorious of the Greeks was a man named Antiochus IV. This Syrian king was actually referred to himself as Epiphanes, literally God manifest. Pretty pompous person, wouldn't you say? This Antiochus, he hated the Jews. He suspended their Sabbaths. He abolished their sacrifices. He destroyed copies of the scriptures. He outlawed circumcision. He erected pagan altars. He did everything he could to substitute Hellenism for Judaism. The icing on his evil cake occurred in December 167 B.C. when he set up an image of the idol Zeus in the temple's Holy of Holies and slaughtered a pig on its altar, the ultimate act of blasphemy. And this stirred up Jewish zeal. Shortly thereafter, a priest named Mattathias and his five sons, John and Simon and Eleazar and Judas and Jonathan, began a revolt in the city of Modin. The story goes that a Syrian officer was forcing the Jews to sacrifice to their pagan gods or to the pagan gods of the Greeks. One of the Jews capitulated and went to offer his sacrifice. And that's when Mattathias, in an act of courageous zeal, stepped up and he killed the compromising Jew and the Syrian officer at the same time. Even though Mattathias died shortly thereafter, his son launched a guerrilla war against the Greeks. Judas Maccabeus. He had a nickname. You remember what it was? Judas the Hammer. He led the Jews to several stunning upsets that drove Antiochus and the Greeks back to their homeland and rid the land of its idolatry. Well, the sons of Zion overcame the sons of Greece. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his land. For how great is its goodness and how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive in new wine the young women, in these last verses, may be describing the brave exploits of these Maccabeans as they defended their land and their religion over the Greeks and then God's defense of these brave warriors. The Maccabean priests, they ruled over the Jews for nearly 100 years until the Romans invaded in 63 B.C.